Dr. Thomas Akel. I can just call you Tom. You can right? call me Tom. I can call you Tom. That's right. Uh, thank you for joining me here today on the podcast. It does mean a lot to me, especially when I get to talk to someone like yourself, a professional in your field. Can you please tell the listeners what you do as a profession? Yes. So I'm a psychopharmacologist or a behavioral pharmacologist. So essentially what I do is study how uh, drugs affect the brain and behavior. So we generally run a range of different kinds of lab studies where we either give people a particular drug and compare the effects of that against placebo or we uh, let them take a drug that they're already taking in some of our medicinal cannabis work now and we basically just observe them and uh, look at things like driving performance cognitive performance we take blood samples saliva samples so we can look at essentially how the drug's moving through the body and and whether there's any uh, relationship between levels of the drug in a body and, and its effects on the brain so sort of a range of different things but generally all focused around how drugs affect the brain and behavior what specific drugs or substances do you use do i use or not use but i should say <laughs> <laughs> let's uh let, let's cut use and say test <laughs> what substances do i test in the lab setting yeah in the yes. lab setting okay <laughs> <laughs> we've got to be clear on this so here at the moment we've got studies going on with uh, a couple of different cannabis studies so one a patient study, well actually uh, one we just finished, and another patient study we're doing now with medicinal cannabis patients. We've got work going on with Ritalin, some other amphetamines. There's been some work with methamphetamine here, alcohol, and I think that's it at the moment. Yeah, I think that's it. Ritalin's for ADHD, right? Yes. What type of test would you be doing for that? Like what type of, uh, should I say, control trials or trials would you be running for yeah. Ritalin? So this is being run by a colleague of mine, and what she's interested in is how uh, amphetamines and amphetamine-like substances affect uh, essentially gaze dispersion. So we look at it uh, in relation to, to driving performance, which we look at on our simulator. And we basically look at how people are um, uh, sort of dispersing their gaze uh, compared to placebo conditions. So there's a theory that, uh, well, there's some evidence to suggest that people often perform better with amphetamines. And there's sort of a history of this, right? In, in World War II, pilots and soldiers been given amphetamines to stay awake and focus for a long period of time. Uh, and so the idea is to see, well, maybe there's a, a bit of a boost in performance, but does that come at the cost of something else? And so the theory is that maybe people are uh, staying more focused, but maybe they're spending way more time looking in the distance or at a particular point on the road at the expense of visual scanning. So they're looking less at their mirrors or what's going on around them. Um, so it's trying to really quantify what sort of effects uh, amphetamines and, and amphetamine-like substances like Ritalin uh, are having on, on that, particularly in relation to driving. Would you have to screen out people who have, say, ADHD? Because if they're already on the medication or even if they're not, they may just take them up to a normal performance, if that makes sense? Yeah, for that study in particular, yes. Yeah, people with ADHD are screened out. So, so with a lot of our work, we end up just looking at healthy volunteers. Mm. And this is sort of a blessing and a curse. In a way, it's necessary to achieve the level of control we need. We need to make sure that people are coming in, you know, with a similar baseline. Uh, but it's also, you know, a bit of a problem as well because obviously we're excluding uh, a large number of people uh, who are actually using these these medications in the real world. But when it comes to running randomized control trials, that's sort of, I suppose, just one of the essential things is that we're trying to minimize. Uh, variance as much as possible mm. and we want to make sure if we're giving someone a drug that they don't already have it in the system that they don't have tolerance to it uh, that they're not sort of expecting certain effects uh, yeah so there's a there's a couple of reasons why but generally generally healthy volunteers 
a lot of people who take cannabis, they will say that they perform better on cannabis. They can concentrate better. They can focus better. Would you say this is just the weed talking or would you say <laughs> this is, is there actual evidence for this specifically in driving? Yeah, I mean, I hear this all the time as well. People love to tell me that my, my research is a complete waste of time. And <coughs> they already have all the answers for me and they're a better driver when they're stoned because they <laughs> they drive more slowly and they're more careful. Yeah. It's not really true, no. I mean, there's, there's pretty much nothing that makes your driving better. Mm. Um, stimulants may be a little bit, like we said before, but perhaps at the cost of something else. Mm. With cannabis, there's a pretty big body of evidence now to show that it does impair your driving. But the question is really to what extent does it impair your driving? And that's been uh, what most of my work's looked at for the last uh, probably seven or eight years now, is trying to quantify that. How bad is that impairment and how long does it last? And we generally see that with cannabis, the level of impairment we see in driving performance is very similar to what we'd see in a driver with a blood alcohol concentration of about 0.05. So the legal limit here mm. uh, in Australia and quite a lot of other countries. Uh, we see a sort of modest change relative to baseline or relative to placebo. Some people do get a lot worse and some people are also extremely unaffected. And I think that's probably where some people are coming from. And I have seen that in the lab as well. You know, you can give two people exactly the same dose and someone's going to be almost incapacitated and, and largely unable to drive and someone else is really fine. And when it comes to looking at the data, we do actually see that reflected as well, that some people show really no change at all in their performance uh, with a given dose of, of cannabis. Well, for someone else, it's extremely impairing. But overall, modest impairment that lasts for around about three to four hours and longer with, with oral products, with oils or you know, things that you're ingesting. Could that just come down to physical attributes? So someone's bigger, someone to smaller, someone who's male, someone who's female, when it comes down to tolerating amounts of cannabis. So if you give a larger individual, just say a, a very moderate dose, a very small dose, we'll say, of cannabis, they may feel it a lot less than an individual who's smaller. Is that yeah. is, is there some sort of wavelength between that and also fam, uh, female to male? The, the weight and height thing, or, or probably just BMI to make it simple, uh, is less important for cannabis than for other drugs. Yeah, for other drugs, we often take that into account. I mean, alcohol is a classic example where if we're trying to get someone to a certain BAC level, uh, we'll get their BMI, we put that into a calculator and figure out what dose we need uh, to get that person to that particular alcohol level. Hmm. With cannabis, it uh, doesn't seem to matter quite so much. Uh, we don't normally weight adjust our doses of cannabis. Sex is an interesting one. There's been a couple of studies coming out just recently, one of, well, which is mine, but uh, one that I'm actually reviewing at the moment. And they're around sex differences and acute cannabis effects. And the, the weird thing is people are reporting totally different findings. So what we kind of generally done in these sorts of studies, we, we don't often have big enough data sets to compare uh, men and women directly, um, but we can pull data from a couple of different studies, uh, and then we see whether there is sort of any apparent differences in the way that, that men and women uh, are responding to certain tasks. And I can't give you an answer to that because mm. the results have been kind of contradictory. Mm. Um, I've seen in the couple of studies where I, I took those data sets and had a look at them that there was really no differences at all. Other studies have suggested that women are slightly more sensitive to uh, certain rewarding effects of cannabis. But I think we don't really know 
the answer to that yet. And the, the National Institutes of Health in the US has recently said that they want, to, uh, they want sex to be a focus of, of future cannabis work and they want that to be kind of incorporated into study designs so that people can look at that a bit more systematically. And then in terms of other reasons why people differ, uh, tolerance is definitely a big one, the amount that people use and the frequency of use. And then you also just see wild random variability across people. And we don't really know why that is. You know, you can have two people that are basically matched on age, uh, similar sets of histories, uh, similar prior experiences with cannabis, and someone's going to be really stoned, the other person may not be very stoned. And we don't really know why that is. It's just sort of random uh, variants that we see, uh, I suppose, in a lot of examples in human behavior, but um, certainly in this. It's pretty surprising that people would still drive under the influence at all on whether it's alcohol or cannabis. I mean, I personally thought it was pretty well known that, hey, if you drive while under something that alters your consciousness, be aware of the consequences kind of thing. But mm. you still see pretty much every day people driving under the influence of alcohol, even when they're completely smashed. Mm -hmm. Why do you think people still think, even after all the evidence has come about, that they'll still get behind the wheel of a car after having so much alcohol. Do you think it's a, a confidence booster? Absolutely. Bad decision making. That's uh, that's what alcohol is known for, right? Making yeah. you feel <laughs> a little bit invincible and making uh, perhaps less less educated decisions than you might otherwise mm. under normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, and definitely being overconfident and then behaving uh, in a risky manner. Things like driving more quickly or you know, maybe uh, making turns across traffic when you would normally not think it's a safe enough gap. Mm. Um, so as to why, I don't know. I mean, you see this everywhere that humans often make <laughs> not very good yeah. decisions. Error is human. Yeah, yeah. with cannabis, it's a little different. I think, I think if someone's really stoned, they're generally reluctant to get behind the wheel. Mm. And I've certainly seen this in some of my work uh, where you have participants that would that you know, they say, if this was real life, there's no way I would get behind the wheel of a car right now, but you're making me for a search, so okay, I'll do it. Mm. And we ran a study in the Netherlands a couple of years ago, and actually, uh, like an on-road driving study, where we got people stoned, and they went out driving for an hour in traffic on the highway, uh, accompanied by a driving instructor. And there were a couple of cases where people were scared to get in the car, and they, it's the last thing they wanted to do, was drive. Whereas alcohol is the opposite, basically. Alcohol is the opposite, mm. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so cannabis is a little different, I think. And then you also have people that think they're fine. They think mm. they're not really impaired mm. uh, and that it's okay for them to drive. And that they, the, the interesting thing with cannabis is that people often are quite aware of their impairment. Mm. Uh, and when driving, people do sometimes make, I suppose, attempts to compensate for what they perceive to be impairment by, for example, driving more slowly, uh, leaving a larger gap between them and the car ahead. So people... Um, often seem to know and they try and uh, engage in strategies to compensate now of course that doesn't necessarily mean that they're driving more safely uh, that they're driving more safely sorry or that they're offsetting any of those negative effects but there's definitely a difference in the awareness of impairment with cannabis compared to alcohol because alcohol it's a depressant and it also turns off if i'm correct your prefrontal cortex it turns off that frontal cortex of your brain which is the logical thinking rational thinking part of your brain i'm not too sure what cannabis does in the brain would you have some insight what cannabis actually does it's supposedly makes you more creative i've heard yeah <laughs> what does cannabis do in the brain that's different to alcohol yeah 
So, so completely different kinds of effects. I mean, most of cannabis's effects are mediated through its interactions with the, the endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. And so the endocannabinoid system is a, is a really widely distributed sort of neurobehavioral and modulatory system that's common to all mammals. So it's been around for a long time and it's not just humans that have it. Uh, and you find the cannabinoid receptors are widely distributed throughout the brain. If you take the hippocampus, for example, that's you know, one of those areas that's often associated with learning and memory, and it's really key for, for uh, developing new memories and integrating them. And that's probably where you see that impairment to short-term memory that cannabis is, is well known for, is by cannabis acting at those cannabinoid receptors in the hippocampus. Uh, and then you see, you see a range of, of effects on the brain at a whole lot of different brain regions. It's sort of, uh, my old supervisor used to like the term promiscuous, the cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it puts itself out there. Um, so it also has effects uh, you know, in the back of your brain where your cerebellum is uh, and the really old parts of your brain that, that are just above the brainstem, you know, that have been there for a really long time. And then also effects uh, at the cortex and the, the newer parts of the brain that are at the top that are responsible for all of our executive functions and more complex behaviors and, and planning behaviors like the prefrontal cortex mm -hmm. that we, I suppose, associate with, with being human beings and having some sort of um, advantage over other species. Yeah, this cannabinoid system, it's also got to do with pain relief itself, right? Because it's, it's a peripheral system, yes. correct? So that peripheral system, if someone's in pain, let's just say they're in chronic pain, um, that cannabinoid system is meant to naturally help alleviate that pain, correct? But if you flood it with your... Now, the term flood's probably a bit strong, but it's kind of the word I can think of right now. If you flood it with, just say, CBD oil or THC, there's also CBN now. So if you flood that system with these compounds, would it be a little too much for that system to take, let's just say, over time? And if someone... Would someone need to be on that for life, depending on the injury they have or the chronic pain they have? Mm. And is there a recovery process if someone's coming off it? Okay, I feel like there's a couple of bits to this question. Isn't yeah, there? yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. I kind of <laughs> went on a bit of a tangent in my own question. <laughs> but if we start, so let's start with pain and the mm. endocannabinoid system, because yeah. this is, and it's a really complex one. So yeah. you're right, the, the endocannabinoid system is, it's not just in the brain, but it's distributed all the way through the body and all the way down to, to sort of nerve endings. Cannabis also has a lot of other effects on other receptors that also play a role uh, in modulating pain. So it's not just attributable to its effects on the endocannabinoid system. Pain is a really tricky one and it's notoriously difficult to treat. And managing pain via the opioid system has been you know, the, the preferred route for a while now, particularly for acute, acute pain that's sort of not resolvable with anything else. And that's where opioids come in. And, and part of the reason that we have a bit of a crisis with this is that it's, it's an effective band-aid solution, but it comes with consequences. It's very addictive. They're very addictive and they don't uh, treat the pain at all. And so with cannabis, uh, the jury's really still out on this one. I, I would say chronic pain is probably one of the biggest areas or points of focus for cannabis research at the moment. We're not there yet. Um, so we probably have more evidence for chronic pain than we do for anything else, but we're certainly not there yet. And it seems like what cannabis is often doing is perhaps not dampening the pain uh, so much, although it does seem to be doing that a bit, also managing some of the inflammation that's associated with the pain. 
and perhaps changing the way that you're processing the pain and being able to uh, deal with it mentally. Now, obviously, pain's a, it's a complex thing. It involves not just the physical source of the pain, but everything else around it, um, the mental component and its effects on quality of life, uh, your relationships and all these other things which end up sort of feeding back into each other. So in terms of the endocannabinoid system specifically and the pain, I think it probably depends on what kind of pain it is. The other thing is, is chronic pain is a really generic term, right? It includes a lot of different kinds of things. And so if you have someone with, you know, say they had some kind of back injury and they had some sort of surgeries on their spine years ago that they've never quite recovered from and you have terrible nerve pain originating from it, that's going to be very different from someone with something like endometriosis where you have massive amounts of inflammation and scar tissue building up in a localized area uh, or someone with some kind of neuropathy. So we're talking about a lot of different kinds of pain that have different etiologies and that cannabis is probably going to work better or worse for depending on the kind of condition it is. And the, the other thing is that cannabis has a lot of and I mentioned this just earlier before, that has a lot of effects on other receptors and other systems aside from just the endocannabinoid system. So we have all these, they're called trip channels, TRVP, uh, and those are responsible for a lot of pain uh, signaling. So the classic one is, is capsaicin and that burning sensation you get if you rub chili on your finger. That, that's a particular trip channel that's responsible for that, and cannabis does have an effect on that trip channel as well. So I suppose that's another reason why we might call it promiscuous is that it's affecting a lot of different biological systems in the body, which makes it really tricky to study and to figure out what's going on with it a lot of the time. What we are tending to see, I think, with, with chronic pain in cannabis is that it's often having a positive effect on quality of life. And so it's allowing people to maybe reduce the use of opioids a little bit. This is still ongoing of research, but there's some promising evidence to suggest that people can reduce their opioid doses a little over time by, by integrating cannabis into their a sort of holistic healthcare um, program. And it's improving quality of life. So it's improving their ability to get up in the morning and feel a little bit better and be able to go for a walk where they wouldn't before. And over time, those little changes can have a really positive effect on someone that's suffering from chronic pain. Is cannabis itself addictive? You will hear, especially people who are very frequent users of cannabis, they'll always say that it's not addictive. If it is, would you just be trading one possible addiction for another? In a way, yes. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, yeah, people like to say that cannabis is habit-forming mm. or uh, yeah, it's causes a gateway dependency. Drug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but rather than addictive, it's sort of a softer mm. a softer-sounding version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ad ad addiction might be a bit of a strong word, but it's... Yeah, but it, yeah. it meets a lot of the criteria for addiction yeah. in the sense yeah. that if you use... Uh, you build up a tolerance to it. People often tend to use more over time. They often use more than they intended to uh, over a long period of time. And there are some withdrawal symptoms. Mm. So it meets a number of criteria for addiction. But it's also a question of, of scale and magnitude. Withdrawal from cannabis is extremely mild. It's easier to get off cannabis than it is nicotine, uh, alcohol, arguably. Uh, I'd say and, definitely. And, yeah, and a lot of other drugs. Mm. Um, so... Yes, but there's also a lot of other substances that everyone uses in their daily lives that probably would also make similar criteria for addiction. And so I think we have to put it uh, in context. But in terms of trading one addiction for another, you mean, if, for example, if you're Opioids, reducing, taping off your opioid cannabis, use, but introducing yeah. cannabis? Mm. Yeah, you could say that. But it's, it's not really that simple an equation, is it? It's sort of, is it worth doing that? What are the trade-offs and benefits? Yeah. And if you're bringing that mm. in... What's worse? 
and you're reducing someone's opioid use by say 30%, then maybe that's a trade-off that's worth making, you know, if, if you're able to to reduce that opioid use. So so yes, but it's a I think it's a question of of sort of clinical relevance and also what state the patient's in and, and the extent to which that's really needed. Mm. When it comes to recreational use or, or non-medical use or whatever you want to call it, then it's a little bit different. But for now, all my work is really focused uh, mainly on patients. Mm. So I'm going to try and stick to that because I think <laughs> cannabis and, and non-medical use is a whole other thing that we can go down and that's uh, it's an interesting one. Yeah. But I think we're also, research is also catching up to that as well. Mm. You know, uh, probably as I imagine we may end up talking about, there's, there's been a long history of uh, uh, anti-drug research. Well, the whole war on drugs thing, that really started because I would say if Timothy Leary, I don't know if you know who Timothy Leary is, yeah. I think that was due because of him. The 60s were a very weird time. There was research into psychedelics. I think it sort of started around the 1920s, maybe. I think the first one was LSD, possibly. Mm-hmm. Once... I think sort of the Vietnam War kind of time came around and then people were sort of pushing love, peace. And then I think Nixon was the president at the time. Then you had a, a leader such as Leary who was saying, what was it, um, tune on, tune in and drop, drop out. out. Yeah. And then he didn't really create the best look for cannabis use and psychedelics and stuff like that. He, he really didn't, wasn't the front man we needed at the time. And then once the war on drugs started and all that research got destroyed, unfortunately, I, th- I think we're at a time now where we are starting to realize that, hey, these things might actually have their use. I'll give you an example. I've had CBD oil before. I took CBD oil for about uh, four months straight. I was taking it purely because like, I've, I've had uh, L5S1 issues in my lower back. I did that. I used to lift a lot of heavy weights back in the day and that's kind of how it began i took cbd oil for about four months my anecdotal evidence was it did help with the pain um i don't really get a lot of pain anyway but when i do it seemed to be less severe i found sleep i'm not too sure it helped me relax but i'm not too sure if it gave me a deeper sleep all i can really say is it helped me relax but what I'm trying to get at here is after I came off it, I didn't feel like I needed to get back on. But what I did feel is the pain was a little bit more severe than it was than when I got on it. And I think that's because of when I got off it, my receptors were so used to me introducing it orally that maybe they just weren't producing enough themselves. And there was that time to switch back over for them to start producing the normal range. And then my body kind of had to get to used to that, whatever that normal range was. Have you seen any evidence of this being the case of when someone gets off cannabis, that chronic pain kind of becomes a little bit more severe than when they got on because of that receptor sort of deflation to activation kind of deal? Are you talking about CBD, CBD specifically? Oil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, was, there was no THC because THC is illegal, but the CBD oil, I got that because I went to Hawaii. I brought it back over. CBD is legal here. So that's what I was taking, CBD oil. Okay. Well, but you can get THC now. It is legal here now. Oh, THC is legal here now. Yeah, since 2016. Oh, well, I did not know that. Yeah. So now there's, a, there's well over 300 products now you can get on prescription here. That's so... Str- All Wait, kinds it? of THC, CBD oils, uh, flower for vaporization, hmm. capsules, but suppositories. That's, that's medically legal though, correct? Medically. Yeah, not recreational, obviously. Not recreational. 
that's it's such a weird it's such a fine line because i know there's a um and i really don't get this there's a cactus called the i think it's called san pedro Mm -hmm. um it's a masculine cactus Mm -hmm. now you can legally grow that here but you can't dissect it and it's like wait a minute (laughs) so i can grow it in my backyard grow it in my house but as soon as i but who's gonna who's gonna be watching that 24 7 i mean some if someone's growing it in their backyard come on man i mean <laughs> they're obviously growing it for a re- that's that's a law of i can't yeah, really it's a nice looking cactus as well yeah it is actually a very nice looking cactus <laughs> i don't have any in my house by the way <laughs> but yeah that's just it's it's weird that it's illegal to a point like it's like yeah, yeah there's that line that you just can't who who draws that line that's that's so weird for me it's the same deal with um psilocybin i'm all for psilocybin use if someone gets a screening first, the same with cannabis, I've heard that it can cause schizophrenic episodes. If someone has a um, predisposition, predisposition, thank you, uh, to it. So yeah, if they get a screening and everything's fine and they are having some sort of uh, mental issues, I am all for using psilocybin. I've spoke to mycologists before and watching people go through something like PTSD or depression or something like that and then you've got drugs like these that could potentially actually reverse it compared to antidepressants where it more so this is just another anecdotal story of mine where i've seen people take antidepressants and get worse and they need more medication on top of the antidepressants because it's causing all these other side effects where you've got something like cannabis or some of the psychedelic like psilocybin or mdma has even shown to help with ptsd it's just weird that we still try and go back to these pharmacological chemical compounds rather than something non-addictive it's been shown to counteract addiction even but we still go back to this old archaic way that could potentially make it worse Mm. Mm. yeah i mean i I find this really fascinating as well Mm. sort of our history as a as a society of deciding what substances people can and can't use Mm. and people have a lot of ideas about you know why certain drugs have been classified or scheduled the way they have and I think that's that's right most of this came out of the US um, yeah starting in the 20s and then uh, going on with that uh, first drug SAR uh, and the start of you know then what, what became the DEA it seems like what happened there was that that was a very deliberate attempt to associate cannabis with with black people Hispanics and then the free jazz movement at the time and there's a really sort of interesting mixture of socio-cultural political factors that went into that but that's been sort of revealed since and some of Nixon's advisors from the time have, have come out and actually said that that yeah that's that's absolutely what what was happening it was a very deliberate attempt it was sort of a smear campaign to associate those drugs with uh, let's say undesirable aspects of, of society or at least they were seen like that at the time mm. by certain people and then it carried forward and it stuck for so long for, I mean, that's got to be one of the most ridiculous reasons in the world, right? And when it comes to, uh, I mean, if you, if you take something like heroin or cocaine, sure, they're not particularly easy to produce yourself in your backyard. There's a whole supply chain that goes into them. But uh, cannabis, I mean, that's probably the prime example, extremely easy to grow. Mushrooms, uh, cacti, pretty much all the psychedelics. Uh, the stimulants seem to be harder <laughs> to mm. make at home. Mm. But the psychedelics and cannabis uh, very easy to make at home and that's a really interesting question should someone get to uh, decide whether you can or can't grow 
a particular plant that could be naturally occurring uh, in the wild in your own backyard. And I, I would argue that there's good sort of reasons at times, whether they're policy or public health reasons, to make it difficult for, for people to access drugs if there's good evidence that the overall harm that they uh, confer is, is greater than any potential benefits. But it's also interesting the way that we see drug use as this sort of inherently bad thing, whereas we don't look at drinking coffee at work a couple of times a day as a bad thing. I mean, that's, that's also an example of using a substance to achieve a particular effect, a more mild effect, sure, and a mild stimulant effect, which I suppose the cynical take is, well, that's conducive to you know, our industrial work culture, mm. uh, and psychedelics aren't. But it's a really interesting question. I don't think there's a right answer to this at all. Mm. But I think it's, it's this sort of a clear, we can see quite clearly now how a lot of this happened and why a lot of these drugs were made illegal. And we also know that there's a, a huge history of use before that point. I mean, we're talking about a very small time in human history where these drugs have actually been made illegal. I imagine they were controlled by societies in other ways before, but there's obviously a long history of use of psychedelics, uh, particularly in South America and Central America with, with certain mushrooms and fungi and, and cacti. And so it's interesting that as a society today, we sort of deem these things to be uh, dangerous, but suddenly now we're seeing this renaissance, as you say, with psychiatry, with things like psilocybin and MDMA and LSD being trialed for a range of different conditions. And I think maybe that is that we got to this point where we realized that most of the drugs that we have available in psychiatry are actually not very good. A lot of them don't work very well, and antidepressants are a good example. There's cases where they can be very effective, but overall the evidence is really not particularly strong or convincing to suggest that they're all that much better than placebo, and they do come with a number of side effects. So this is really exciting now to see these drugs being revisited and, and, and sort of looked at under controlled circumstances. As you say, like LSD was, uh, you know, almost 100 years ago. And this is going to be interesting interesting time, I think, to see where this goes and, and how this happens. And my, my worry with all of this, and much the same as it was with cannabis, is that it's very easy for a small group of powerful and rich people to, to co-opt this and to essentially then control. I mean, it's, it's extremely expensive to run good clinical trials and to establish the efficacy and safety and all the data that you need to get a drug registered and, and sort of on the market. And I think we've seen this with cannabis in the US and Canada, where it ends up being, uh, the industry ends up being extremely tightly controlled by a couple of major players, uh, that probably the same way we have to, with tobacco and alcohol. And there's all this promise when a new industry starts that it's going to create all this sort of new industry and, and, and jobs and open up a whole new avenue. And I'm a little, I suppose, skeptical of seeing, seeing the hype around psychedelics at the moment and seeing that bubble grow. And my, my sense is that at some point it's going to burst and we'll probably realize that these drugs uh, are an exciting new way to treat certain things that we didn't have options for before. But they're not going to work for everyone. There's going to be problems. Um, there's probably going to be a couple of things that go wrong along the way that are going to have a, a big effect. And so it's really just the start of the journey. And it's, it's nothing's ever a panacea, right? I mean, it's, we've been around for, a, well, not me and you personally, but humans have been around for a long time. And uh, there's never been any example of anything that just works for everyone and fixes everything that doesn't exist. It's the same way with medicinal cannabis, the way it's going to work for some people and it's not going to work for others. And it's going to be the same with psychedelics, but I think at least we can hope that 
they offer a new way of thinking about conditions uh, like PTSD or, or depressive disorders where they're really associated with extremely rigid patterns of thinking that are very hard to break, deeply ingrained uh, connections or associations in the brain. And that seems to be the really exciting bit about psychedelics. And as anyone that's ever had a, a psychedelic trip knows, your brain goes crazy. I mean, it goes totally haywire. It, it's, it's so different from the way that you normally think and, and look at the world. And that's uh, the reason that people have used them for, for recreational, spiritual reasons for a long time. But that's also the promise mm. in psychiatry is they offer a way to, to sort of radically uh, and fundamentally shift, even if only temporarily, uh, the neural activity and the, and the connections in your brain. So I think that's it's exciting, but also a little cautious. Hmm. Yeah. Well, even alcohol was illegal at one point. There was a prohibition. I'm not too sure when that was. Was that also was that in the 1910s, 1920s? Yeah. Also, yeah, exactly. So alcohol was also very illegal at one point. But then it, in what was it? I think it was in a little of 10, 15 years it became legal, and then it's now distributed in. You can go you can go to Coles right now and buy as much alcohol as you want and they won't stop you even though a certain amount of alcohol will kill you but you can still buy as much as you want and it's so funny to me that there has never been as i'm aware of there's never been a death of too much cannabis or too much psychedelics and by that i mean like psilocybin or something within a proper controlled setting but there's been plenty of deaths from alcohol yet there's never been um, harsher restrictions. I think there was one recently in Alice Springs where they tried to control alcohol a little bit and straight away, as soon as that happened, people were in an uproar. People, they were going crazy. It's, but then it's kind of like, wait a minute, so alcohol's causing all this violence, all this mayhem in this city, yet you don't want us to put a little bit harsher rules on it? it but then you want us to keep these extremely harsh rules on cannabis and psilocybin and um mdma all, all these specific uh, drug components that could help people it, it doesn't make it really doesn't make sense to me going back to our conversation before regarding sleep have you seen any pros and cons to the sleep on just say cannabis i know sleep on alcohol is pretty obvious it's a depressant it doesn't really get you it doesn't put you in that deep sleep it doesn't put you in that um NREM sleep, mm-hmm. the non-rapid eye movement sleep. It gets you to that rapid eye movement, but it doesn't put you in that deep sleep. It keeps you in sort of that uh, very shallow water. Mm-hmm. I'm not too sure on cannabis though. There's people that say, yeah, I've had the best rest that I've ever had on it. I'm not too sure. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any research on whether it's uh, beneficial to have on sleep or whether it's before, or if it's just helping someone relax to get to sleep? Now, THC definitely does help with sleep. It doesn't mean that it's a good solution to sleep problems. <laughs> <laughs> but it definitely helps put people to sleep and helps you to stay asleep. Uh, and I'm seeing that with a lot of my, my chronic pain patients now. Sleep's one of the big sort of side effects that they get that they find particularly beneficial. Uh, you know, they can sleep like they weren't able to before. Um, it also changes how much time you're spending in REM sleep. Uh, it changes what your sleep pattern looks like across the night. Um, I think the general thinking is that long-term use of THC for sleep, while good in the short term, uh, does end up having sort of other consequences. And then when you stop using it, you sleep suddenly really terrible. So that's part of the withdrawal bit of cannabis. 
is that your sleep suddenly becomes really bad and becomes extremely hard to fall asleep without it. So it's a bit of a, a double-edged sword. Um, in terms of CBD for sleep, a couple of trials recently just failed. So that there's, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's a bit of a race at the moment to get drugs registered um, as Schedule Three CBD products that you can buy in the pharmacy. So the TGA changed this ruling, uh, I think probably almost a year or two ago now, to allow CBD products of up to 150 milligrams a day to be sold over the counter in pharmacies. The kicker is that companies have to get their drugs registered as an S3 medication for them to be uh, allowed to be sold. So it's been a bit of a race with companies sort of out to you know, be the first company to get a, a, an over-the-counter CBD product registered. And there's been a couple of trials that just recently failed. Um, Can Group is probably the most well-known of those, a, a Victoria medicinal cannabis company. And they were looking at CBD for, uh, for insomnia and it did nothing. It didn't help at all. So um, I think ca cannabis is a, and probably this really covers our whole conversation. Cannabis is a complex plant with a lot of different stuff in it. Um, THC is one of those molecules. CBD is another one of those molecules. But you mentioned CBN before, which people think may be beneficial for sleep as well. And then there's a lot of others with all kinds of names from CBG to CBV and then all the acid forms of them, CBVA, CBGA. CBDA, yeah, it just starts to look like a scrapple board at some point. But there's a lot of different cannabinoids in the plant, uh, and some of those may be useful for sleep, maybe some of those are better for sleep than THC without the just sort of intoxicating effect that just kind of knocks you out. The same way that you know alcohol is, you don't have a good sleep, you don't have a deep sleep, but you feel a little bit knocked out. Maybe that's a similar situation to to THC. I don't think that, that uh, I don't mean to sort of uh, draw a, a complete parallel, but analogous in the sense that you're when you're a bit intoxicated and sedated, it is easier to fall asleep. Um, the same way that drugs like uh, benzodiazepines or even diphenhydramine like Benadryl can knock you out uh, and you're going to maybe sleep through the night, you're not going to wake up as much, but you might feel a bit groggy in the morning. You might not feel like you actually slept that well, just that you were able to sleep. So you said it's uh, THC that helps with sleep, correct? Yeah, it's, well, the evidence we have at the moment around CBD is very weak. Um, a lot of people are looking at sleep at the moment. I don't think there's any convincing evidence yet to suggest that CBD really does anything for sleep. Maybe with heroic doses that are probably um, prohibitively expensive for most people. Um, but THC certainly, sure, I mean, smoke a joint, a lot of people have the best sleep of their life. So what's actually going on? I know with sleep, it's got to do with, uh, you've got your pineal gland, which helps with uh, releasing melatonin, this suprachiasmatic nucleus. There's also the uh, hypothalamus as well. All that's related to sleep. Is the THC acting upon these parts of the brain? Some of the, in terms of sleep physiology, and that is not my not my area of expertise. So I'm, I'm sort of, I don't want to uh, sort of lead anyone astray yeah, here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but Neil Glenn, I'm actually not sure uh, what effect THC has on that. Um, but it's essentially a dampening of uh, activity in parts of the brain and that activity that's modulated via uh, the CB1 receptor, which is where THC's intoxicating effects come from. Uh, and that seems to be what's producing those sedative effects. Uh, and that's what's contributing to, to sort of that intoxicating bit and the bit that's getting you to sleep and keeping you asleep. Uh, I'm not sure in terms of uh, which bits of the brain 
uh, specifically responsible for for sleep and how that's affected by cannabis. I'm, yeah, I'm actually I'm actually not sure about that. I've got a colleague who who does have a background in sleep physiology, and she could probably speak to that better than me. Okay. Yeah. You were saying before how cannabis acts on the hippocampus. Mm-hmm. Were you saying that it actually inhibits the hippocampus? Is that what you were saying? Dampens activity. It sort of dampens neuronal activity. Uh, which is why it becomes harder to remember things, to recall memories and to integrate new new memories. So mm. long-term memory is largely unaffected with cannabis, but you know people can uh, have a thought in their head and, and two minutes later you can't remember what you were thinking about or, or even 30 seconds later. And so that's sort of a dampening of activity and a dampening of signaling in the hippocampus. Because yeah. you hear a lot of people that say, I'm much more creative when I'm uh, stoned. Mm-hmm. And then when they get stoned, they'll come up with all these crazy ideas and they'll write them all down and stuff like that. But if the hippocampus is kind of dampened, we'll, uh, we'll use the word dampened, it seems less aggressive than um, inhibited. I'm guessing this is where most of, well, we don't really know where thoughts come from, not really. But if this is where all most of your learning is processing through how is being creative even possible if that makes sense because is there even a creative part of the brain there's a lot of different parts of the brain that are involved in creative processes Mm. Um, a lot of it's up in the cortex and the newer parts of your brain Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there's all these different areas specific areas that are associated with you know speech and language production uh, visual processing which is all, all at the back of your brain and so it's an integration of quite a few different parts of your brain. I mean, there's no particular center that's sort of your, the creative bit of your brain uh, or not. And so I think it's possible to have, you know, you, you can have very isolated effects in the brain, uh, for example, like dampening of the hippocampus, and then uh, sort of an excitement in other parts of the brain uh, at the same time. Uh, and I think part of the issue with, with trying to explain all this is that we don't have that good an understanding just yet of all the downstream effects of cannabis. So we're talking about CB1, the CB2 receptors. Uh, some researchers uh, in the Netherlands who I used to work with have a, have a whole theory around dopamine regulation, this, this feedback loop that, that travels from the hippocampus to anterior cingulate cortex to your prefrontal cortex and includes a whole lot of other brain areas uh, in between. Uh, and it seems like there's a sort of complex uh, network of interactions going on with dopamine production and, and um, uh, dopamine transition and neurons there uh, and I imagine that there's a lot of other networks like this as well where cannabis is affecting uh, either directly through the endocannabinoid system or indirectly through other uh, other receptors that we just don't really know about yet and so there's quite a lot of brain imaging work going on at the moment to try and understand this uh, this better um, but in terms of sort of being creative it, it's that's a really complex that's a really complex thing and it seems like in a way it, it switches your the same way that psychedelics uh, are, are thought to sort of disrupt the default mode network uh, you know which is all your sort of regular patterns of Doing thinking that thinking about it basically yeah. yeah which is required for everyday function we need to have some kind of sort of stable stable baseline that we can revert back to that we know it's going to help us make sense of the world around us but then when you disrupt that which you can do in a number of different ways essentially by altering um, sort of neural transmission, affecting which bits of the brain are, are communicating with which bits, and maybe you're exciting certain bits. You know, you say you're, you're increasing glutamate 
responds from a certain part of the brain and that's then increasing excitatory signals to other parts of the brain or you, you may also be decreasing that and increasing GABA, uh, you know, which is, is sort of the opposite that inhibitory signaling. And so you may then be uh, inhibiting signals and dampening the activity like in the hippocampus uh, to that and other parts of the brain. So you can have a, a really complex network of different kinds of effects going on um, that essentially lead to some kind of altered consciousness or disrupted thinking. Uh, and I think it's hard to say that, you know, the creative thinking is attributable to, to just one one part of that. Cannabis has been used in the past for um, eye disorders like glaucoma and stuff like that. It's meant to help with uh, having better vision, I guess. Yeah. Have we seen in terms of driving what it can do to that? Because I think the visual is in the back part of the brain. Does it actually make... So if someone's driving, does it actually make visual perception better rather than... Because I'm guessing visual perception and actually reaction times are two different, two separate things. Yeah. Have we seen that the visual perception actually acts a lot quicker than the reaction time would? So if something's coming by, it's helped that visual part of your cortex sort of signal it, but you just can't react to it due to the cannabis? Yeah. Um, the work on vision is really interesting and also another area that I think is understudied. There was a there was this study that came out, I, I can't remember when this was, a long time ago, uh, about Jamaican fishermen. And the, the claim was that their visual acuity at night time was better from their cannabis use. Wow, and this is a history, and it wasn't it's a particularly all fishermen out there. <laughs> it wasn't a particularly good study, you know. It wasn't exactly by the by the the standards we would apply today. It was a small group of people, but essentially the claim was that these fishermen who were smoking a lot of weed could see better at night. The stuff that's come out since suggests that cannabis does have a lot of uh, effects on visual processing. People are slower to respond to things that are moving quickly across you know, a screen or any kind of uh, visual presentation. But there's so many sort of potential effects on visual processing that, that we could take into account. In terms of driving, it doesn't seem that cannabis is improving any aspects of visual function that would confer any advantages to driving. People are not sort of quicker to, they're not able to better detect motion, they're not able to respond more quickly to things uh, which is, is like you said, it, there's a dissociation but also a connection between response time and visual processing. The first step is the visual processing bit, right? You know, you see, say, a dot flashes on the screen. You have to press a button as quickly as you can when you see it. First of all, that signal has to go from your eyes to the back of your brain to your visual processing center to V1 part of your cortex to, to figure out what it was and uh, did it have a particular color, shape, uh, movement goes to different areas uh, of your brain you know, in that visual area to, to figure out uh, what were the characteristics of it. And from there on, uh, then once you've recognized it, then you can go on to, to make the physical response, like pressing a button. So there's a lot of stuff that kind of goes into responding to something that appears in your, in your vision, right? And like you said, it doesn't seem like it makes people uh, slower or worse at detecting simple things that pop up on their vision. Um, but people are slower to uh, respond. Your reaction time is uh, increased. Uh, so as, as in, you know, it's, it's taking you longer to, resp to respond to something than normal. So it's happening somewhere along that pathway. And it doesn't seem to be anywhere in the eye. It's somewhere between, I think, the visual processing center of your brain and the bit that's actually coordinating the physical movement, like pressing a button in response to it. Yeah. 
Now you've looked at amphetamines when it comes to driving, correct? Not me personally. There's other work going on in our lab involving okay. amphetamines, mm -hmm. but that's not really been my, my work or my area of interest. I would imagine that it may help. I'm not telling people to take amphetamines and go driving. Um, I'm just saying I could imagine it may help just because it increases uh, your, vis your visual sense. It kind of like opens everything up. You're very uh, sporadic with all your movements kind of thing. I could imagine that it would help. But at the same time, these those things are also very addictive. When it comes to... So it's Adderall that they were testing, right? Uh, Ritalin. 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 Ritalin, yeah. What parts of the brain is Ritalin really working on? It's the frontal cortex, correct? Yeah. Again, amphetamines and that's all neurobiology. I'm, mm. I can't speak too much to this, um, mm. at least not reliably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I've, I've never taken it myself, so I, I, I couldn't say so. I've had personal experience in the past with uh, cannabis and all that stuff and alcohol. And just from an anecdotal point of view, I think cannabis is far safer than alcohol any day of the week. I, I find alcohol makes people very emotional. Uh, it, it tends to push that, I don't know what it is, but it kind of, the person who's taking it, it kind of makes them want to be the leader of the pack or the, the forefront of it. They, you know, the very outgoing, but also can be some type of aggressive as well. It's sort of that ag aggressive, if you're happy, you're aggressively happy. If you're angry, you're angry. Whereas cannabis just seems to, I don't know, just kind of makes you want to sit down, talk, maybe eat, watch some TV and relax or something like that. But uh, that brings me back to the legality of it. It's just very weird. It's very weird for me. Where do you see the future for things like cannabis and MDMA and psilocybin and all these? Can you see a brighter future or coming back to that bubble, do you really think that it's going to get to that point where people inflate it so much that people with a bit of money come along and find this one little story where something may have happened. It could have been a very isolated incident and just pop that whole thing. No, I do see a bright future. I mean, there's, there's the medical use and then there's the recreational, the, use. Yeah, yeah, the societal use. Uh, and I see a bright future in both of those areas. I think the way where thinking about drugs as a society is fundamentally changing. There's, you know, for probably for our generation and successive generations, people are going to grow up with drugs around them and being much more familiar. I mean, drugs are everywhere, right? Mm. Uh, and they're more common than they ever have been. More people are taking them. And it's pretty clear that most people can take them responsibly every now and again. And it doesn't have any major effect or detriment on their everyday life. Mm. So I think that's going to carry on. I think changing cannabis laws is already happening. Uh, a couple of states in the US now have changed their laws around access to psilocybin. So I think there's a lot of little uh, signs that this is starting to change and I think it will continue to do so, at least in the Western world. Uh, the world as a whole, I, I imagine some countries are gonna be much lower and will probably be quite strongly objected to any changes this but i think we're definitely changing i think people are changing their relationship with alcohol mm. um you know non-alcoholic drinks is sort of one of the fastest growing sectors of the market and you see if you go into 
Dan Murphy's or BWS now. There's a lot of marketing and advertising geared towards non-alcoholic beers and spirit drinks and, and all kinds of things. So it seems like a society where we're changing the kinds of drugs we do use and we're changing our relationship with them and that people are recognizing that, policymakers. The challenge, I think, and this is probably where a lot of the the pushback from law enforcement comes from is around the supply and the distribution of them. And a bright future, you know, I, I guess people often wonder if these drugs were to be legal one day, what would that look like? Would it be like you, you go into a pharmacy and, you know, you give them your license the way th they check for some things already um, and they kind of look you up and make sure you're not coming in two times a week and if so, then you get 175 milligrams of MDMA split into two halves or something like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's ever going to look like that, but I think we're going to have to find some... I think there's going to be more reasons to find some kind of sensible way to regulate supply and safely administer these drugs, given that so many people are already using them, than the opposite approach, where there's clearly um, significant harms associated with the way they're being consumed at the moment in the black market and all of the import supply and distribution and the criminality that comes along with that. So I think something's going to give, and I've got no idea what this is going to look like. I, I don't think I, I don't think anyone really does. Mm. And I imagine we're going to see lots of sort of attempts at coming up with sensible models, very incremental steps. Cannabis is probably the first one because uh, we can see that's already changing. In Australia, I mean, what, New Zealand, their referendum to legalize it failed by the tiniest percentage. Mm. Um, medical here is growing hugely. And it's only going to be a matter of time before we have recreational cannabis here as well. So it's uh, it's one step at a time. But I think once we have that, um, the, then the talk around other drugs like MDMA, uh, is the, our dialogue's probably going to change once mm -hmm. we've had some more experience with uh, with cannabis and, and mm -hmm. regulating that, you know, as a as a legal drug where we're controlling the supply and doing all the quality checks and making sure that consumers have access, if they're going to use it, have access to a high quality product that we're sure is lab tested and free of heavy metals and pesticides and contaminants. Sometimes I feel like the people that are just most, ag most against these type of um, substances are the people who probably have never experienced it themselves. I'm not telling people to go out and experience it. It's still illegal. Don't do it. But I think once they've seen the documents of how it can change people positively. So the research, anecdotal stories, and if they are going to experience it themselves, even that, it, I think they need to open themselves up to that kind of thing before they say yes or no. I, f I think most people who are pushing it down, other people who just close themselves to that door completely, I'm not saying that to try, but even to look at how it's changed people, like anecdotally and actual journal articles, and going back to the distribution, as you were saying before, I just thought of something really funny about how if someone's, you know, you can go by your local chemist or someone, someone will walk in, walk out, then walk in with a fake mustache and here's my prescription. <laughs> that, uh, that'd be hilarious. But yeah, distribution is, it is another weird one because I think if we're going to cut the head off the snake in terms of illegal distribution, the only way to get around it is legal distribution at the end of the day. Yeah, because if you make these things legal, then you don't need people won't need to go to a dealer anymore, and then they're not going to get things that are being cut with fentanyl and stuff like that, where people think they're getting something, but then they're getting something else, and then they die because they're getting 
this overdose on fentanyl seems to be climbing quite rapidly and it's it's really sad but i think that's just another reason to um uh legalize these substances and being able to manage them in terms of dosage does that make sense yeah mm. yeah absolutely mm. I, mean, I think it's interesting when you look at cannabis use rates in uh if you compare cannabis use rates in australia to the netherlands where the netherlands has had sort of de facto decriminalization policy for uh, I think close to 40 years now cannabis use rates in Australia and New Zealand are two or three times higher than they are in the Netherlands and I, I, there's, there's clearly so much evidence now that uh, prohibiting something like you were saying before with the prohibition with alcohol doesn't work the people that want to use it are going to use it anyway uh, and they're going to use whatever they can get and probably more people are going to use it because it's exciting and taboo. Hmm. And making something legal doesn't suddenly mean that everyone's going to go out and start taking MDMA every day. Hmm. But that's a that's sort of a, a complex line of thinking and I think a, a tricky one to, to deal with. But we'll probably get evidence uh, for this over time. Like, like I said before, seeing this sort of experiment going on with cannabis. Because that's, what, that's the comparison between Australia and the Netherlands, but that's after 40 years. And if we look at what's happening in the U.S. and Canada now, where it's expanding hugely, cannabis use rates are actually going up in a lot of places, it's probably another 20, 30 years before we can really see the true effect of uh, legalization on uh, usage rates within the community. It's not something you see overnight. Mm. It's probably reasonable to expect that you might see an increase in the first couple of years afterwards because it's exciting. Uh, but then that begins to then drop off over time when people go, oh, it's just, you know, mm. I actually don't really like weed. Mm. Or I was never going to use it anyway, and now that it's legal, I don't really care. Mm. So, yeah, I think when it comes to other drugs, uh, sort of, well, to use the term harder drugs, things like MDMA or cocaine that people are using recreationally, that we could one day be having a conversation around distributing and supplying legally. Probably the big public health challenge or question is well is that going to increase usage rates in the community is that going to increase harms mm -hmm. uh, and that's a that's a complex equation because like you said the harms associated with illicit products which are often contaminated uh, and with people are not well educated and take far more than they should and don't know how to sort of take things sensibly they also don't know how to seek help if something's going wrong because they're scared that their parents are going to find out or uh, you know something like that so there's a lot of barriers are things that may well be increasing harms with the current system that we can get rid of by making something legal but then you also introduce a new range of, of variables mm. and then the other question is well where do you draw the line which drugs do you make all drugs legal do you draw the line at certain drugs there's some drugs that are really bad and probably should never be made legal <laughs> mm. <laughs> that some people would take if they have mm. the, the the chance to mm. Uh, and I don't pretend to know the answer to that. Mm. No, that's, that's that's very true. I thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I, I know time is of the essence for you today. And um, it is getting pretty close to knockoff time for you. But I do thank you for coming on here. Uh, thank you for having me. Enjoyed uh, this. Dr. Tom Uckle, yeah. Anytime you want to come on, I, I could talk to you all day, it seems like. If anyone wants to uh, look up your work that you're doing right now or any past work that you've done, where can they find this? So you can find my, my researcher profile at Swinburne University. You can look me up on Google Scholar. It's just Thomas R. Arkell. Uh, and you can find all my publications there. But probably my researcher profile at, at Swinburne 
it's probably the easiest way to, to find me and, and get in touch and see. Uh, if you're interested in reading any of the publications or the research that I've been involved in, you can find links to it there. Do you have any social media people can follow you on, like an Instagram or anything? Just LinkedIn. I try and stay off social media. That's actually a really yeah. good idea. Speaking of addiction, that's actually a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, well, that's another one. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thank you very much for joining me. I loved having you on and thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.